A reading from Wendell Berry. The nation is a boat, as some have said, ourselves its passengers. How troubling it is to now ride drifting down the flow from the old high vision of dignity, freedom, holy writ of habeas corpus, and the land's abundance down to waste, want, fear, tyranny, torture, caricature of vision in a characterless time, while the abyss swirls below. To save yourself, heart whole in life, in death, go back. Go back upstream. If you have to swim ashore and walk, walk. Walk upstream along the bank of the Kentucky River, the bank of Cane Run, and step from stone to stone up Camp Branch through the cut-down, long-time returning woods. Go back through the narrowing valleys to the waters of origin, the dry leaves, the bare wintering trees, the dead, the unreturning. Go from the corrupted nation to the ruining country with the land, again make common cause. In loving it, be free. Diminish as it is, grant it your grief and care, whole in heart, in mind, free, though you die or live, so late, begin again. The abyss of no meaning, what can prevail against it? Love, for the water in its standing fall through the hill's wrist, from the town down to the river. There is no love but this, and it extends from heaven, to the land destroyed, to the hurt man in his cage, to the dead man in his grave. Shall we do without hope? Some days there will be none. But now, to the dry and dead woods floor, they come again. The first flowers of the year, the assembly of the faithful, the beautiful, wholly given to being. And in this long season of machines and mechanical will, there have been small human acts of compassion. Acts of care, work flower-like in selfless loveliness. Leaving hope to the dark and to a better day, receive these beauties freely given. Give thanks. Thank you. 
Seven humans sit in cramped quarters, five Americans, one Frenchman, and a prince from Saudi Arabia. They each wear a light blue jumpsuit with a helmet attached at the neck that provides oxygen and maintains critical communications. Adrenaline pumps through their bodies as the three space shuttle main engines in conjunction with a solid rocket booster, the largest solid propellant motor ever produced and developed for space flight, provides a thrust of 1.75 mega newtons, yes, a measure based on a theory by Sir Isaac Newton in the 1600s, to lift 4.5 million pounds off the ground. This extraordinary technological feat hurdles our astronauts into low Earth orbit, known as the thermosphere, where they circle the planet at 17,000 miles per hour. And when they aren't working, these space travelers get a heavenly view they get a heavenly view, a panorama few humans have actually witnessed. They get a view of the third planet from the sun, our home, Earth. Clearly, it is a transcendent experience. Prince Sultan bin Salman al Saud, the only Arab and Muslim to go into space, observed on that trip. The first day or so, we all pointed to our countries the third or fourth day, we were pointing to our continents. By the fifth day, we were only aware of one Earth. One Earth. What will it take for all of us to have this revelation? To know it in our bones. To stop pointing to countries, to continents, to the human race, and towards ourselves. One Earth. It's all we've got. One Earth diminished and in peril. A planet some 4.5 billion years old. One Earth, home of the interdependent web of existence of which we are a part. This, of course, is a quote from the beloved Unitarian Universalist Seventh Principle. This principle is vital to the standing on the side of love concept that we are exploring this summer here at First Universalist. I believe this principle is the key principle in relation to everything else. Recognizing our interdependence puts the other principles in proper perspective. More on that later. First, I'd like to share with you the kind of interesting story about how the seventh principle came to be adopted by the member congregations of the UUA in 1985. UU minister Kenneth Collier was involved in the adoption of the seventh principle and tells the story like this, and I'm paraphrasing. In 1984, after a four-year study process, the language of the first six principles was crafted and proposed. These principles did not explicitly cover the concept of interdependence, and as a consequence, a group was prepared to vote against the proposed principles unless it was changed. 
A debate ensued, and as it wore on, and patience grew thin, the Reverend Paul Laharu stood up and proposed the seventh principle. And remarkably, with just a few word changes, this principle was passed with few, if any, dissenting votes. This is a notable feat for Unitarian Universalists. <laughs> and now, years later, we appeal to the principles for all sorts of things. But as the Reverend Collier points out, it is the seventh principle that is appealed to the most, and by far the most often. Thirteen years later, sociologist Robert Bella spoke to the Unitarian Universalist General Assembly about this, the importance of this seventh principle to our faith and for our message to the world. And he said, I quote, Beneath the surface glitter of American culture, there is a deep inner core, which I have argued is ultimately religious. The sacredness of the conscience of every single individual. Nothing I have said tonight takes away from the enormous power for good that is of that idea, but it opens the door to the worst of our culture. It is easily leads to the idea that humans are nothing but self-interested maximizers, and the devil take the hindmost. It is in that ver version that we see all around us. I don't think we can challenge that version until we come to see that the sacredness of the individual depends ultimately on our solidarity with all being, not the vicissitudes of our private selves." End quote. This perspective is a challenge to the individualism widespread in much Western culture and for much of our tradition's history as embodied in the first principle, the inherent worth and dignity of every person. As much as we value the individual's freedom and worth, we need to see this in relation to the interdependent web of life, in relation to all life. Our interdepending is what I'm calling it. Bella suggests that our seventh principle ought to be first, providing the context for all that follows. This is a remarkable insight. The reality of the 21st century means that we can no longer be blinded by the cult of the individual. The precarious state of the world and its land, animal, and human communities demand a new frame of mind. Climate change and exponential human population growth have reached crisis proportions. Globalization and oppression of people in developing countries present moral complexities that must be addressed. I just have to say, all of this is truly overwhelming. It is not surprising that there is an astounding level of collective denial around these issues. Unbelievably, climate change is not at the center of the U.S. presidential campaign, and it is totally absent from the political agenda. 
Even the conservative British magazine, The Economist, in a June 16th special report stated, the earth, the world, the world would be mad to ignore the grave dangers. The impact of the melting Arctic may have a calamitous effect on the planet. It is time for a paradigm shift. People in privileged circumstances must shift from an insidious, individualistic, hierarchical view of existence to a, conscience, a conscious, interconnected understanding. This is no easy task, and yet, it is an amazing opportunity. In this moment in time, we are given this choice. It is difficult to separate yourself from the cultural norms that you have lived in your entire life. And the seventh principle informs us how an ecological consciousness provides us with this new paradigm. The science of ecology is essentially about relationships, and its vocabulary is surprisingly useful in theological discourse. Scientist Ernest Kallenbach states, the science of ecology studies all interactions among living beings and their environment. Ecology is a study of patterns, networks, balances, and cycles, rather than straightforward cause and effect. It strives to understand the functioning of whole living systems. An ecological view teaches us that we are intricately interconnected and nothing on the planet lives or dies in isolation. Ecological consciousness, the inspiration for our seventh principle, invites us to learn from the wisdom of the Earth's relationships in biotic communities, while religious consciousness asks us to interpret and find meaning in those relationships and those communities. Ecological consciousness is about humanity viewing itself as part of a whole living system. It decenters human as primary and center of the universe and recenters humans towards our interdependence of the earth as a whole. It calls us to interdepend on love. The implications of this are interpersonal, intercommunal, interspecies, and interglobal. As human beings, we carry the burden of this knowledge and of this reality and the additional burden of our profound and devastating impact on the earth. In her ecological theology, Christian theologian Sally McFaig states it this way, we have the knowledge and power to destroy ourselves as well as many other species, and we have the knowledge and power to help the progress and the process of the ongoing creation to continue. This means in an unprecedented way, like nothing that has ever been, we are profoundly responsible. This one earth, our mother, sustains us and provides for us all. As Meg Fagg points out, there's an inverse dependency between higher life forms and lower ones. She lifts up how the plants could easily survive without us. 
while us humans are utterly dependent on the plants for our survival. I invite you to take a deep breath of air and let it out. And remember, no plants, no oxygen. The human community must allow ourselves to be humbled and transformed by the dynamics of the web of life. In this way, we are called to stand on the side of love. It is a circle of existence. There is positive and negative synergy. Every action ripples out into the world and affects the whole. And it is with a great sense of urgency and deep concern that I approach the future. Myself, I have only just begun to comprehend the depth of denial I maintain about how my privileged lifestyle impacts the planet. In the United States, we account for only 20% of the world's population, but consume 80% of the world's energy. The environmental crisis springs from prosperity, not poverty. My overconsumption results in eco-injustice that affects people, animals, and the environment. Professor Eliezer Fernandez at United Theological Seminary calls it, I love this, gobbleization. <laughs> Something as simple as the banana I eat for breakfast demonstrates the overwhelming complexity and destructive pattern of North American middle-class consumption my part of gobbleization. You see, I have to confess, I am quite attached to my soy fruit smoothie I drink every morning. I drink it for my health, and now I really think a fruit smoothie is considerably better with a banana. And as you can see, <laughs> I, collect, I get my bananas, and this one's been through it. You see, a banana makes the consistency of my smoothie smoother. It adds a really, really nice, subtle flavor, and also a few hard-to-get nutrients. About three years ago, I did uh, some research about the production of the banana, and it made me want to stop eating them. I did for a while, but you know, I just couldn't live without it. It was easy to forget those distant inequities I unearthed about the banana. You know, I really like my smooth smoothie. But as I began reflecting on eco-injustice for this sermon, I started to have that uneasy feeling again about that banana in the morning. It is a stark reminder of globalization and the interconnectedness of life. As I peel my banana, I begin to picture women, men, and children working 11-hour days for only $160 a month. On large farms of cleared rainforest land in Ecuador, owned by Dole, I pictured anti-union billionaire owner David Murdoch withdrawing the company from public trading to avoid scrutiny into his business practices. And then, since me and everyone else in the United States only wants the Cavendish variety of banana, there's a high need for fungicide and pesticide use 
Therefore, aerial spraying is common and often done when workers are present in the fields. That there's been pesticides accidents that have caused large fish kills. There have been lawsuits against Dole and Dow Chemical for the use of the pesticide DBCP with over 22,000 plaintiffs, some 5,000 claiming sterility. And due to the single crop farming practices of the industry, some experts are predicting the spread of a virulent virus, or fungus, excuse me, a fungus, that could wipe out the banana completely, and that this fruit must be shipped over 5,000 miles to Minnesota, first in refrigerated container ships, and then across the land in refrigerated trucks requiring large amount of energy consumption and resulting greenhouse gases. And then upon arrival, the green bananas must be ripened in special rooms, controlled between 59 and 68 degrees, and then sprayed with ethylene gas. It's a real downer. (laughs) That banana is an exotic, tropical fruit sold in my local grocery for an average of 79 cents a pound. When I was in Target this past week, a sign proclaimed that a single banana, a single banana cost 19 cents. But at what cost? When will we start to calculate the true cost of putting a banana in my fruit smoothie? The story of the banana demonstrates how I depend on people and products from around the world to satisfy my privileged tastes. Yes, with globalization, we are even more interconnected than ever. And yet, how sad that these transactions, in the long run, serve my needs far more than the workers who produce them and contribute to a growing ecological crisis. The predominant middle-class American worldview has a subtext of unlimited consumption for personal satisfaction at all costs. Our denial and silent complicity requires our liberation. In less than 200 years, human technological power and population growth has resulted in destroying the balance of interdependence and interrelatedness that has existed for billions of years. This is why recognizing our interdependence is vital today. It is humbling because from a planetary perspective, perhaps humans are more liability than asset. Perhaps humankind has set a course towards extinction. Extinction is, after all, part of the story of evolution. The great poet, prophet Wendell Berry, he speaks to the deep despair I feel over the condition and future of our planet, as well as the hope I cling to. In the poem we heard earlier, he tells us, with the land again, make common cause. In loving it, be free. Diminished as it is, grant it your grief and care whole in heart, in mind, free, though you live or die, 
so late begin again. Barry reminds us that in spite of our destructive practices, we still receive so much from the earth. And it is from the earth we can still find hope and learn. The first flowers of the year, the assembly of the faithful, the beautiful, wholly given into being, receive these beauties freely given and give thanks. We are urgently called to a greater expanse of love. It will require tremendous sacrifice to move beyond personal satisfaction to planetary salvation. All of life is the paradox of individual distinctiveness amid community. It is a great interdependent web of existence. The seventh principle should be the ground of our very being, the source to guide our actions and change our way of living. We cannot do this simply as individuals. It requires the work of every business, every politician, every community, every country. And in doing so, we must all develop a heart as big as the world and live in humble gratitude. May it be so.